Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Currington as he shares this week's message. Take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 8, verses 40 through 56. We're going to end chapter 8 this morning as we look at the power of faith, the power and reward of faith. And let me ask you, as we think about help, to whom do you go to when you need help, support, and comfort? Who's that person in your life that you have a problem, you have a situation, you you need advice, you need counsel? Who is it that you go to? Who is that person or group of people that have shown themselves to be of good character, they have compassion, and they're willing to listen and to give words of wisdom and help you when things are tough. Who is that in your life? I pray that you have someone. The most lonely of, uh, loneliest of us is when we have no one to go to. And we've all experienced it, right? Where we, when we talk about someone of good character that we can share, we've all been part of that uh, dynamic where we have shared something with someone and instead of being compassionate and listening, they've used that against us. Have you ever been... Uh, on the edge of that. Yeah, many of us have. To some, they may find their support through their parents or their spouse. Maybe you have a best friend or a counselor, maybe a therapist. Maybe it's a small group or the elders of the church. And I pray that you see the elders of the church and your small group as part and parcel of that uh, support system. Others might look to the government or social influencers or even academia, philosophers, psychiatrists, medicine. The point is that all of us typically have someone that we go to, someone or something that we put our trust in. We're looking for help. Earlier in our call to worship, David cries out that he cries out to the Lord for help. That's who he goes to. The Apostle Paul describes God as the God of all comfort. Hopefully it is obvious to those of you here at OVBC that we believe that those two are correct. The best place to go for advice and comfort is God. He is the one who will hope or give hope to the hopeless and help to the helpless. The gospel primer reminds us that as children of God, that God now only has love, compassion, and deep affection for me. Let me ask you, do you have someone that, that loves you like that? You say, well, yeah, but really, do you have someone that truly loves you like that all the time? Do you love all the time? No, if we're honest. So God now only has love, compassion, deepest affection for me. And this love was was without any mixture, admixture of wrath whatsoever. That is mind-blowing. That someone can look at me. And, and love me so completely that there's never any mixture of anger, bitterness, and resentment in there. Because that's difficult for us as humans, right, to eradicate in our lives. You know, we call family the people that we love but we really don't like. You know, we love them but there's that mixture, right? Or there's people in our lives that we care for them but yet there's some type of resentment or bitterness. We, 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 we put them a little bit at arm's length. But look at this, God always, now this is only those that are born again, those that are made in his image. 
God always looks upon me and treats me with gracious favor. Always working all things together for my ultimate and eternal good. God's grace abounds to me even through the trials, the suffering, the pain. And because I'm a justified one, one who has been declared not guilty, he subjugates every trial and he forces it to do good unto me. Where is my help? Where does it come from? We should cry, my help comes from the one who sees me in that way. And like David, we must keep this truth in the forefront of our mind as we seek solace and advice in the midst of our struggles and suffering. Unfortunately, too many Christians put their trust, their faith in the wrong person or thing. Again, as a reminder, you see here on the screen, I've spoken about this before. Faith is not a belief in ourselves or others. It's not something that you and I can conjure up ourselves, but faith is a confident trust in the person and the promises of God. And I want that to sit there and just marinate for a moment. Write this down if you need to. Take your phone out and take a picture of the slide if you need to. That, that is fine with me. Anyway, that you'd like to take notes. But faith is a confident trust in the person and the promise of God. Now, let me ask you, who do you truly, who can you truly in this world, either person or, or, or entity, can you have a confident trust in? There's only one. There's only one who you can put that confident trust in. And so my question is today, <clears throat> when you say that you have faith, is this the faith that you have? Because that is the power of faith. This is the one that the faith that is rewarded, that who has a confident trust in the person of God and his attributes and the promises of God that we find in his word. In our passage two weeks ago, we read of the man who was possessed by demons. Remember that story. If you hadn't, didn't see that message, go back to our, our webpage and you can find that message. In that passage, not only does Jesus deliver the man physically uh, from the demon possession, but he also redeems his soul for eternity, which was a greater feat. He took care of this man's immediate needs, but he also gave him something, something much better, salvation. Jesus has done the same thing for you and I. Through Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, we have been delivered from the works and the enslavement of the devil. We have not uh, suffered from demon possession. Most likely you have not. But we all have been delivered by the mercy of God. Amen? We also too saw two reactions and responses. The first was the fear and rejection of the populace. Fear of what Jesus did, ignorance of who Jesus is, and the selfishness and resentment that the cost of the man's deliverance was the, the slaughtering or the death of some pigs. They cared more, much more for the pigs than the man. They counted the cost of the man's salvation as too much. We've lost our livelihood. We lost our, our food. We lost our jobs. This man was a nuisance, probably a, a constant source of trouble and maybe one that they were afraid of. And that herd was worth a lot of money. I was going to say the herd was a lot worth a lot of bacon, but I thought that would be a pun too much. The second reaction and response is that of the man who was delivered. <clears throat> he responded with gratitude and worship. 
He begged Jesus for permission to follow him. He had a taste of Jesus' authority and his power, and he desired more of Jesus. Instead, Jesus told the man to stay behind to share his story and his testimony of how Jesus delivered him. And, and he did. The result was that everyone marveled at what Jesus done. And we had talked about how you have the greatest second, excuse me, the second greatest story ever told is that of how Jesus has delivered you. And you too are called, commanded <clears throat> to share that story. But as we move on to the end of chapter 8, Luke is going to describe two stories, two narratives that details Jesus' interaction with a man seeking Christ's help and healing his daughter and a woman that was suffering from an illness for 12 years. Now, in the past few weeks, <clears throat> excuse me, we have seen Jesus' authority and control over the winds and the waves of the storm. Remember that? His authority over multiple demons and even property that didn't belong to him. And today, we're going to see Jesus' authority over long-term sickness and even death. Father, we pray as we come to your word that we would take it seriously. This is a great privilege, a great responsibility. So as you open up your word, whether it's through the paper pages or through our phones, through our, through our some electronic device, Lord, that we would just open up our minds and hearts to its truth. Recognize that this is your revelation to us. We will one day be held accountable for what has happened, what was said, what was learned, what was listened, what was responded to. So let us do it to your glory and for our good. We praise in Christ's name. Amen. Now, as we approach today's passage, and it's a longer passage than we normally tackle, we notice several things about the two events, these two events that they have in common. One is the woman has been suffering for 12 years from this blood disease, whereas the girl who is sick and going to die is also 12, is not also, but is 12 years of old, 12 years of age. We see the pressing need of both the child and the woman. And we're also going to see the importance of the faith of the woman and the father of the young girl. But there's also a couple contrasts. The first one is the popularity of Jesus here on the east side of the or the west side like lake versus the east side. Here he's welcomed. They're waiting for him. They're pressed around him. They're surrounding and pressing in. But we also see the prominence of the man, Jarius, as we're going to read here in a moment, in a moment and the anonymity of the woman. One who is sneaking in and trying to get in and, and just be unseen. And these two accounts are going to reveal Jesus' power, as I said, over long-term sickness and death. As Jesus provides hope for the hope, hopeless and help for the helpless. But most important, what you're going to see here in these two events is you're going to see a, a faith in action, that, that confident trust in the person and promises of Jesus of God. You're going to see faith in action. So number one, we're going to see the popularity of Jesus. Look at verse 40. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all await awaiting for him. Now Luke is describing here the response and reaction of the crowd to Jesus. And he says here, it's, it's totally different from the crowd on the east side of the lake. Remember, they're fearful of Jesus. As you may recall, the people were afraid. They were furious at Jesus after he delivered the, the, the delivered and redeemed the demon-possessed man. In anger and fear, they demanded that Jesus leave the area. So Jesus was asked to leave the Decapolis, those 10 Gentile majority cities. And so he does. However, what's sad about this story, what's not told in the story, is that the people's fear and rejection prevented Jesus from teaching and sharing the gospel. 
and from healing probably many people in that area that needed healing. And that's a sad note that you and I, we didn't cover that day, but we're putting our, our thing on the east, west side of the lake. They're, they're waiting to receive Jesus. On the east side of the lake, they want nothing to do with him. The only witness they will have is the man they once feared and was isolated due to his condition. But here on the west side of the lake, though the, pe- the people have been waiting They have been expecting and anticipating Jesus' return. Luke notes the size and excitement of the crowd as Jesus gets off the boat. They are desirous in hearing his teaching and preaching, as well as hoping to watch him perform miracles. Probably as we look at this group, there's even those who are hoping and praying that Jesus will touch them and heal them. So we see the popularity of Jesus. But as we look at number two, the second observation is that you see the first action of faith is Jairus Jairus trusts that Jesus can heal his daughter from a life-threatening illness. Look at verse 41. There came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, you see this action, he, he falls at Jesus' feet and he implores him to come to his house. For he only had one daughter, about 12 years of age. And she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. Luke informs us that Jairus was a ruler of the synagogue, meaning that he was one of the lay people who served in the administration of the synagogue. He was not a a priest or a Levite or a rabbi. Uh, These rulers were in charge of such tasks as upkeep of the synagogue, scheduling worship, uh, but they did not function as priests. They were usually very rich and connected men. Their money is usually what got them to be these uh, high esteemed role in the synagogue. Interesting, this man, though, does not use his authority to demand that Jesus come and heal his daughter. What we read here is that he shows deference to Jesus. We see this prominent man uh, humbles himself. He throws himself at his feet, at Jesus' feet, kneeling down. In Mark's gospel, we read that he comes in humility, falling at Jesus' feet, imploring him to heal his daughter. In Mark, he says, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be well. He knew, he trusted, he had a confident expectation that Jesus just had to touch his daughter and his daughter would be miraculously healed. Most likely, here he had heard or even to saw Jesus' miraculous works of healing. He trusts that Jesus is able to heal his ailing daughter who is suffering from some type of life-threatening illness. Luke does not tell us what it was, but just the severity of the illness. And moved by this man's faith and his love for his only daughter, Jesus willingly begins to follow the man to his house. Again, we see the crowd, though, as it almost swallows up Jesus, so to speak, as he begins his journey to Jairus' uh, home. So he's in the middle of this crowd that's just pressing around him. And then thirdly, the third observation is we see that a, a woman that Jesus can heal, or a woman trusts that Jesus can heal her of a long-term illness. Verse 43, <clears throat> and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She was hopeless, helpless. There was no one that could help her. She came up behind Jesus and she touched 
the fringe of his garment. And immediately, Luke writes, her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? And when all denied it, the people around him, Peter said, Master, the crowd surrounds you and you are press, are, are, are surround you and are pressing in around you. Give me just one moment, please. Going on in verse 46. <clears throat> but Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone up from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him and declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. What wonderful words. You have been healed. Go in peace. This seems to be one of Jesus' favorite sayings to those he heals. This poor woman seems to have no hope. <clears throat> she has done everything humanly possible. She's tried all sorts of doctors and medicines and treatments, but all have failed. Her health is deteriorating. Mark in, his Mark in his gospel describes her condition as a chronic internal bleeding, probably from a menstrual health issue that was not only financially draining to her as she was spending money trying to get rid of the problem. But here's most importantly, is it left her unceremoniously unclean or ceremoniously unclean. She suffered from social and religious isolation. Remember in Leviticus, it says that a woman in that discharge could not be around people. Anyone she touched, anything she touched, anyone who would touch her would also then be unclean and could not come to a temple for seven days afterwards. But the problem was, is this woman was in a constant state of this disease. And so she was not able to go to church. She was not able to go to temple. If she was married, her husband could not go. They could not go into the marketplace. They could not go and touch and hug those that they loved and cared about. I mean, we're talking COVID uh, on steroids. This poor woman was isolated. She suffered from social and religious isolation. She was not even allowed to be in that crowd of people. You recall those who were unclean were to stay away from groups of people. And even when they were around people, they had to shout, unclean, unclean, so that people could scurry away from them. Could you imagine living life like that? What a terrible, terrible place she was in. Hopeless, helpless. Yet she has one last hope. She has one last help. In some ways, she had seen or heard of Jesus. Maybe from afar, maybe from a concerned friend who said, go to Jesus. What a wonderful thing. Go to Jesus. If you have any advice to anyone, tell them, go to Jesus. But she has one last hope. <clears throat> she trusts. She's confident. And it gives her enough courage to do that which she has been taught all her life not to do. Go into a crowd. This must have been very difficult for this woman. You can imagine the turmoil in her mind and her heart. What if someone recognizes me? What if it becomes known that what I'm doing, that in this crowd? 
But she ignores all other things and she approaches Christ. In referencing Mark's gospel, once again, she believed this. If I even touch his garments, I will be made well. That's her thought. He doesn't even have to look at me. He doesn't have to touch me. Jesus can't touch me. I'm unclean. I can't be touched. If I can just touch his garments, though, if I can just rub against them, I'll be healed. And this is important as we think of her story. Because even though she had faith in Jesus, it is mixed with a superstitious thought that in touching his clothes, she would be healed. Her faith was not perfect. It had a mix of superstition thinking. This superstitious belief, by the way, is not unknown in Scripture. We see it several times when, when Peter would people, people, when Peter would walk by, people would try to put people who were lame and blind in his shadow so that as Peter walked, maybe they would walk under his shadow. Or Paul's clothing, they wanted to touch Paul's clothing. Elisha's bones uh, raised someone from the dead. I remember when uh, uh, Dawn and I, early in our marriage, when we had one of our uh, young sons, Jacob, uh, we had a family member that was sending us a prayer cloth from a man named Robert Tilton. Uh, he's still banging around down in Texas somewhere. And he was one of those guys that says, he had a TV show, send me in your prayer request and your check or money order. And I will send you this napkin that I'll pray over. And when you get that napkin, take that napkin and put it on whatever is you're suffering from and you will be healed from it. And remember, she continually wanted us to do that for our son. And we just, we just don't believe in that. What's interesting, 2020, I believe, did an expose on him. And they went to his uh, offices. They went down to, to the back where the, the trash was. And they found all the envelopes that people had sent uh, to uh, Robert Tilton. Out of it, all of them were open. The letters of prayer requests were still in there, but all the checks were gone. They didn't even read the prayer requests. They just sent you these things. It's a superstitious belief. But we find this belief here today, those who practice faith healing, that just touch this, put this oil on you, this or that, and you can be healed. Luke writes that this woman had been struggling for 12 years with this illness. This woman who had spent a fortune seeking medical help was healed immediately as she touched Jesus' garments. Immediately. That's how we know that it's from God. It's immediate. It's fulfilled. It is complete. He makes a point to write that she felt an immediate healing as Jesus did and as Jesus did in knowing that healing power had went from him. Even through the jostling of the crowds pressing in on him, Jesus could tell that this was a different type of touch. Remember everyone, he was probably just being uh, manhandled by people touching him, grabbing at him. But only power of healing went out to one lady. This is a touch of faith. Jesus asked his disciples, who was it that touched me? His disciples answered with a mild rebuke of astonishment. Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. They couldn't believe Jesus was asking them this question. As we noticed earlier, a great throng of people were following and pressing up against them. A better question might have been, who is it touching you? Some might think that Jesus is looking to rebuke this unclean woman from touching him. However... Jesus wants to encourage and praise even her imperfect faith. I believe he also wants to make sure that she knows that she is not healed by her superstitious belief, but by her faith that Jesus can heal. 
It's important to understand that our faith, our trust in the person of Christ is in Christ and not in a object. Many get sidetracked in trusting the wrong things. Israel is a great example of this. Over their history, they put their trust in kings, implements of war, the temple itself, the walls of Jerusalem, even the brass serpent in the wilderness. By the time Jesus arrived, they could not even recognize their own Messiah. This woman shows courage in admitting and confessing that it was her that touched Jesus instead of running. There was no way she could anticipate the reaction of Jesus or the crowd. He could have taken the healing away. The crowd could have stoned her on the spot once she realized that she was unclean. She had planned on a secret, unknown touch, a one-way encounter with Jesus, but she got so much more. You see, Jesus had special, uh, divine, providential insight. He was able not only to tell her that power or tell that power had gone out from him, but that she had a faith, that she had a belief with great compassion, understanding of her pain. Jesus addresses her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. The word daughter conveys a deep, uh, a deeper relationship. And just want to give you a quick word. This is something that we, and I, we don't talk about much. I probably should put a message together, together on this. We talk about forgiveness of sin. We talk about justification. But we don't talk much about the, the greatest thing that God gives us or one of the greatest things that God gives us in salvation. That's adoption. We were talking about this week with a couple people. It's adoption. He adopts us. There's a new relationship. You have a new father. You have a new uh, relationship with God. Hence why he can look at us with such love and compassion. He doesn't look at you as a screw up. He doesn't look at you as someone who always makes bad choices. He doesn't look at you as a complainer. He looks at you as one of his children. This woman who was once isolated socially, religiously, and even from her family. And here's the important thing. She was now accepted. The healing was great, but now she is accepted by God. What great words. And like the demon-possessed man, she is completely healed both physically and spiritually. <clears throat> Number four. We see that Jesus raises Jairus' Jairus's daughter from the dead despite the scorn of others. Go with me to verse 49. While he was still speaking, Jesus, or speaking, someone from the ruler's house came. So here it is. He's speaking to the lady, to the, to the woman. And while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Jairus is with him, right? He's walking with him. And he looks at Jairus and says, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. Think about that phrase. How would you receive those words? But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, do not fear. Only believe and she will be well. What would that do to your thoughts? This verse 51. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter, John, and James, and the father and mother of the child. And they were all weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. What great words. But look at verse 53. And they laughed at Jesus, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, 
Jesus called saying, child, arise. And her spirit returned and she got up at once. I love that, at once. And he directed that something should be given to her to eat. Again, another example of proof that she was alive. Her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what happened. Isn't that odd? He tells the man on the east side of the lake, hey, tell everyone what happened. But on the west side of the lake, he always says, the west side of the lake, don't tell anyone. How amazing. Whether the interruption with the woman caused a long long enough delay for the girl to die, we do not know. Whether it was or not all part of God's plan, whether or not it was all part of God's plan to glorify himself. Luke informs us that as Jesus was speaking to the woman, someone came with that news, your daughter is dead, do not trouble. I can only imagine what went through Jairus' mind on hearing that dreadful news. That's the words that I pray that I never hear, by the way, right? None of us do. And I know some of you have, and I, and I know the pain and the grief that brings you. Surely his mind is struggling to comprehend report. And he's thinking, wait a second, haven't I found the healer? I found Jesus. I asked him. I humbled myself. I knelt and asked him to come with me. And we were walking. We were heading that way. What what is going on here? Maybe he's beginning to have some anger at the woman woman for interrupting Jesus. Or maybe from the crowd who's not allowing them to walk freely. I'm sure Jairus, as he's trying to get Jesus to his house, is saying, this is taking too long. People, clear away. Do you not know who I am? I can imagine the anger, the pain, the emotion this man is feeling. Maybe it's just anger at himself for not finding Jesus earlier. Maybe it's even at Jesus. Where were you? Why were you over onto the Gentile side of the lake? But Jesus says, do not fear. Jesus, however, instead of rebuking Jairus' mind, redirects it towards the positive. Do not fear, Jairus. Only believe. Only believe, and she will be well. Jesus simply gives a word of assurance to the Father. Continue in belief. Write that down. Continue in belief. Underline that. For that's the charge I have for you this morning. Continue in belief. Arriving at the scene that Luke paints for us, we see the professional mourners. In those days, they would, they would pay people to come and mourn. What a job that would be. You know, they're all crying and wearing black and wearing, putting ashes on themselves. But they're already at work plying their trade. They don't even care about the person. They may not even know. They're weeping and wailing loudly. Sizing up the scene, Jesus asked them, do not weep. Quit doing your job for the most part. For she's not dead, she is but sleeping. Now, you think of that word and you think, well, she's just sleeping. We know the difference between sleeping and waking. Sleeping was a euphemism for dead. In response, we read that they laughed at him. They had heard the wail of the mother's voice. 
They heard the proclamation from those attending to the girl. She is dead. There was no doubt. Yet they did not know Jesus. They didn't understand his power. Death is no obstacle to the power of Jesus. Taking Peter, James, and John and the parents, Jesus goes to the girl, and again, he demonstrates his power over death by bringing her back to life. What a great word. The one who himself would die and raise again has the authority to bring back life from others who are dead. Luke tells us that they were immediately overcome with amazement. So here's we're going to come. What does that mean for us? What is it that this is trying to teach us? He's telling us about the power and the reward of faith. That confident trust in the person and the promises of God, of Jesus and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, the Father. There's power and there's reward for those who confidently trust in the Trinity. Now, these last three stories, including the demon-possessed man, of the last two passages have expressed desperation. All three of them, the the, the demon-possessed man, the the woman with the discharge for 12 years, and a 12-year-old girl that died, they were all hopeless. They all were helpless. They were at the end of the rope. The man that delivered from demons, he caused him to act like a madman. The woman from a long-term illness left her completely bankrupt and isolated. The young girl, the father with the young girl, was struck with a life-threatening sickness and death. But all of these three stories also deal not only with desperation, but with uncleanness. Uncleanness, according to Scripture. There was an unclean spirit possessing the man. There was an unclean woman due to a menstrual illness. She could not attend. And then there was the unclean girl that died. The one that they would embrace and love when she woke up in the morning or when they put her to bed or when she came home from school. At that moment, they could not wrap her in their arms or they too would be unclean. But here's an extra point. This is extra credit. Even though all three were unclean, Jesus touches and heals each one. You see, Jesus is not made unclean by those who are unclean. No, Jesus makes those who are unclean clean. In the same way, when Jesus touches you, he makes you who are unclean, disobedient, rebellious children of God, he makes you clean. He makes you righteous. Amen? See, that's the, that's the power of a changed, transformed life, of raising the dead to life. And by the way, there is a resurrection each time that someone accepts Christ. He is raising the dead. We who are spiritually dead are raised to walk. A new life, that's what baptism uh, demonstrates. It's what it signifies. Twice we see that people act in faith. Now, the the demon-possessed man had no faith, okay? Jesus can heal those that do not have faith. However, here we see that twice that two people act in faith and they are rewarded for their faith, the, the woman and the father. The writer of Hebrew tells us that Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. 
Now remember what's hoped for. It's not wishful thinking. It's a confident expectation that God will do as he says. It's the conviction of things not seen. The writer of Psalms 119 verse 2 sings, Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. I pray that that's you this morning. That you seek him with your whole heart. That you look for him for the assurance of things hoped for. That you have a conviction that even though you do not see the promised land today, that one day you will. That God will heal you from all of your diseases. That he will wipe away every tear from our eye. And he will subjugate all evil for our good. We may not see that in the here and now. But we must have a confident trust that Jesus will do that for us. I'd like to close with three truths about faith. One, faith is necessary to please God. That's what he tells us in Hebrews eleven six. 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever draws near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. You must have a confident trust. That's actually what, what regeneration is. It's a repentance and then turning and putting a confident trust in Christ that's what you do when you come born again. And so faith is necessary to please God. No matter what you do, it is with, through faith. But also, number two, we have to realize that faith does not come from ourselves, but faith is a gift from God. Romans 12, 3. For by grace we have been given, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. People think, well, look at what I'm doing. Look at how good a Christian I am, a good person. Look at the good works that I do. Instead, he says to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. And that's important. Faith is a gift from God that he gives to us. That's what Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says. For by grace are we saved through faith. And not ourselves. It is a gift of God. What is the gift of God? Not only salvation, but salvation through faith. You and I don't have to work for it. We just have to trust God. So faith is a gift from God. And God gives each of us a measure. He assigns to us a measure of faith. Number three. God uses others to help when our faith is weak. There will be times when you will need to be held up in your faith. First Thessalonians, Paul writes this, Pray with earnest night and day for us, that we may see you face to face. He's writing to the Thessalonica church. He says, pray for us, because we want to see you face to face. Listen to this, so that we may supply what is lacking in your faith. God knows that there are some things that you are not yet confidently trusting in him. And that's the, the beauty of the church. is so we come across to do that. Friend, what is your desperate situation? What is making you unclean? Who is causing you to doubt the goodness of God? And to whom can you lean on for faith, support? My charge is come to Jesus. He's a friend well known, as the hymn says. He hears and responds, even when our faith is imperfect. So let me give you these three things to do. 
no matter who you are or what you do, you and I need to humble ourselves and trust in someone greater. Both of these, the woman and the men humbled themselves, took courage and trust in Christ. You need to do so today. It may be an emotional issue that you're going through now. It may be a physical. It might be a mental. It might be a financial. Maybe it's relationship. Maybe there's something going on in your life that you are struggling with now and you are trying to get a handle on it and you just feel like, man, it's like, I get my, it's like I'm filled with grease-filled hands and it's slipping out. You, you need to trust in someone greater than you to solve the problem. You need to trust in Christ, the promises of God. Number two, our faith, even when it's imperfect, when it's mixed, maybe with superstition, maybe even with some works relationships, is still accepted by God. He uses it. He grows it. You may say, well, I don't have a great measure, a great confidence and trust in Christ. Well, here's what you need to do. Pray for it. If God is the one who gives it and assigns it, then pray. I love that song, I ask the Lord that I may grow. And in it, he says, I pray for more grace and faith. And that's one of my prayers. Lord, give me more faith to trust you more, to supply what's lacking in my faith. See, when you sin, what you're doing is saying, I don't trust God in that he will give me that promise or he'll fulfill it. So help me supply what is lacking in that. That's the job of the elders, the job of each and every one of us, parent to child, uh, mother to the, the daughter, uh, uh, husband to wife, and vice versa. Pray for a greater measure of faith. Lean on those with greater faith than you. Have someone carry you to Jesus. That's the beauty of the local church, as I said earlier, is that you're not called to walk this alone in isolation. But grab a brother and sister that has greater faith. Listen to the stories. Hence, why I'd like to get us more testimonies. That's why I like the ladies' tea, because typically one of you ladies give a testimony, and that's encouraging. That's humbling to share your life with someone, but there's also encouragement, is there not? Then lastly, never lose faith when others doubt. This is coming to Jairus. They are doubting Jesus Never lose your faith even when others doubt. Stand strong. Remember that God is there. And there will be those who will cause you to doubt. There will be those who will charge you to, to curse God and die just as Job's wife did. There will be others that say, well, there's no way that God can handle this. Let me tell you, he can. I'd like to give you one other definition of faith. I've given it to you before years ago. I learned this as a young man from one of our deacons, an older gentleman. I think this is a great definition as well. I think it's biblical. But he defined faith as bold obedience to God's word. God's word has much to say how you and I should live our lives as a married couple, uh, as in dating, uh, uh, in financial, in all things. God's word has everything that pertains to life and God and holiness. We can help you with that. So it's bold obedience. I like that. It's bold. It's saying, I, I have the courage. I, I'm going to do this, not, in, not, not secretly touch his cup, but I'm going to boldly do it. So it's bold obedience to God's word in defiance of circumstances and consequences. 
Hebrews chapter 11, you get to the end there and you see these people who were torn asunder, who gave their life, who were boiled alive, who were used as lamps for Nero's uh, enjoyment, who were murdered. They boldly obeyed God's word in defiance of circumstances and consequences. I don't care what the circumstance is. I don't care what the consequences may be to me. I'm going to do it. I love the, uh, I, oh, uh, Polycarp. Uh, he died in the, in the late 100s, I believe, in the first century. And they said, deny Christ and live. Recant or you'll be burned at the stake. And he said this, not while he was in the luxury of his own home, but while he was tied up to the stake with the wood there, with the man holding the fire, he says, I have served God these 96 years. I would not deny him today. As they then put the fire, what would you die for? Who would you die for? Faith. That's what God has called us to. There is power and reward for those who trust confidently in the person and the promises of God. Everything else is sinking sand. Trust in him. Would you this morning? We just thank him for these two people that we know, Jairus and the woman with no name. But they show us faith in action. Be that type of Christian. If you're struggling, come along. We'll walk alongside you. And we'll help you in that walk. With every head bowed and every head closed, as the worship team comes up, Randy, would you please come for a pastor's prayer? Again, as my charge always is, I want to ask you to pause and consider what was said here this morning. And you may need to shift through Rob's words and jokes and what's left is God's word and truth. Then would you pray and ask God how he would call you to respond and would you do so this week? putting more trust in the one who can make you clean, raising you from the dead. To God be the glory. Amen. Amen. Randy, would you come and share with us prayer? We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help hear the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.